Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. We are, as always, here to answer your questions on the most important issues any human being will ever consider. If you've got questions about having a personal relationship with God as that relationship's revealed in His divinely inspired Word, the Bible, that's what we are here to do. And uh, how you do that is you get the questions to us. We've got a number of different avenues available for you. To get your questions to us, sometimes people ask uh, what kind of questions would be good for the broadcast. Hey, uh, any question about the Bible itself, anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, you want to dig deeper into the Word, we're all over that. You want to learn how to apply God's Word, perhaps uh, to the uh, current challenges you're facing in life. We would love to be able to hear what's going on in your life and share with you how you can uh, walk in the ways uh, of God and allow his love and his light uh, to give you guidance and wisdom that will absolutely blow your mind and bless you. That's what we're all over each and every day. If uh, maybe uh, you've been asked a tough question about your faith in Christ in these increasingly skeptical times, uh, we would welcome those questions as well. Uh, Maybe you've been asked a question. Maybe you've always wanted to ask a question and uh, you've never found a place where you can do that and not feel embarrassed about it. Uh, We consider this a no harm, no foul, non-judgmental environment where you can ask any question the app with one important distinction. Make sure it's a sincere question. And if you're looking for an answer straight from the scripture, happy to do it. Questions about uh, the events of today, the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy. As always, we're all over that. But uh, wherever we go uh, on the broadcast, entirely up to you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So, uh, Sean, how can uh, people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us online, you can first join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That, of course, under the Watch Live tab, will send you to a stream where we'll have our email address at the top of the screen, or bottom of the screen, rather. But at the side of the screen, on the right side, you'll have a chat box available to send in your questions to us live as we are broadcasting from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. Note as well, if you want to join us, uh, perhaps in a previously recorded format, we will be doing a countdown to our next broadcast and automatically playing the program's messages there as well. If you'd like to use social media, questionsforhope at gmail.com, of course, is the email address, but YouTube will be a reason for hope. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Function in a similar way to our website. If you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified of when we're going live in your respective time zone. But if we're not recording, that's not because of a technical malfunction. Uh, Feel free to nonetheless uh, join us on our website. If we haven't given you prior notification, they can't ban us on our own platform. Note as well, uh, continued prayer support for the broadcast and the purpose we intend for it to fulfill. But, uh, of course, prayer support from without is not going to be done without, uh, I guess, First within. Why don't we uh, start off in a word of prayer and see how the questions come? Okay, let's do that. Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity to be able to explore your word in this one question at a time format. We pray, Father, that uh, the questions that we receive 
would be from the heart, and the answers that we're able to give would be just infused with your love and your truth in wonderful balance. Thank you for Jesus being filled with grace and truth. Thank you for uh, coming even off of uh, Easter uh, Sunday services. Uh, just so wonderful to see how many hearts were touched and blessed uh, just even here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. And Lord, I know you're doing an awesome work all around the world. We pray, Father, that that message that you, the true and living God, are alive, that you care for us, that you love us, and uh, that uh, you desire to show yourself strong on behalf of those who call upon you in truth. I pray that that would come across in this broadcast today. Guide us into your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, now as I have a second chance now to be eloquent, uh, what is happening in the world just to start the week off? Not prophecy updates per se, but certainly an interesting topic as we're waiting for the questions to come in. Yeah. Well, uh, boy, there was a uh, doozy, as they say, I think that's the technical term. A doozy, not a daisy, but a doozy that uh, that, uh, that went down. Uh, the New York Times uh, decided to uh, go into uh, the Easter weekend by uh, encouraging uh, a by the publication of an editorial uh, to uh, have its readership contemplate the idea of killing the God of the Bible. Uh, now, context is needed. Because we don't want to just go off the uh, title page, but it doesn't get better, does it? No. Well, uh, there was a fascinating article uh, by Robert Spencer on the PJ Media website that describes uh, what this editorial was all about. Uh, Robert Spencer writes, Passover started Friday and Sunday is Easter for most Christians. Orthodox Christian Easter or Pascha is next Sunday. In keeping with the season, the New York Times thought Thursday was the perfect day to publish a rancorous anti-God screed written by an angry former believer. The Times is now openly proselytizing for atheism. And while that's certainly its prerogative, it must also be asked, why now in the lead-in to the two holiest times for both Jews and Christians? Also, qui bono, who benefits by all of this? The Times op-ed was the work of Shalom Oslander, the author of a book called Foreskin's Lament, a memoir, in which he bitterly recounts his Orthodox Jewish upbringing, and how he said goodbye to all of that. He essentially does the same thing in the New York Times piece, presenting some uh, acid uh, recollections of being an eight-year-old learning about Passover, adding, quote, In this time of war and violence and oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else, God. This is because God's judgment on the Egyptians in the Exodus story seemed to Oslander to be excessive. God, it seems, paints with a wide brush. He paints with a roller. In Egypt, said our rabbis, he even killed the firstborn cattle. He killed cows. If he were mortal, the God of the Jews, Christians, and Muslims will be dragged to the Hague. And yet we praise him. We emulate him. We implore our children to be like him. Oslander adds, perhaps now as missiles rain down and dead are discovered in mass graves, it's a good time to stop emulating this hateful God. Perhaps we can stop extolling his brutality. Perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over God, to be as unlike him as possible. That's the message the Times is giving us for Easter and Passover. Oslander doesn't explain, of course, where he thinks he got the moral sense that he used to judge God's actions in the Exodus account as he understands them. The Times, of course, has no space to consider answers to Oslander's theological questions, which have been considered by Jews and Christians throughout the ages, who are far more thoughtful than Oslander himself is. If it does, however, you have plenty of spaces for Oslander's practical conclusion, killing gods is an idea I can get behind. 
Well, uh, this uh, deicide would be for our own good, you see, because Oslander claims that that would make us more open to people who are not like us. Quote, this year, at the end of the Seder, let's indeed throw out our doors open, not to the prophet Elijah, but to strangers, to people who aren't our own, to the terrifying them, to the evil others, those people who seem so different from us, who think our enemies, we are our enemies who think like us or theirs, but who, if we sat down around the table with us, we no doubt find, uh, despise the pharaohs of this world as much as we do, and who dream the same uh, thing as us all, peace. How wonderful, but much like so much of what comes from the New York Times, that is fantasy. The grim reality is there are several avowed atheist regimes around the world in the last century, some still with us. Without any exceptions, they have been viciously brutal to people who are different, not just racially or ethnically different. See uh, the uh, uh, people that are being tossed into uh, the concentration camps in uh, China these days, but the NBA and different people don't want to talk about that. Uh, but uh, also uh, to those uh, who have uh, departed from what their government delineated as the acceptable parameters. And that brings us to the who benefits. Why uh, does the Times propose uh, in bringing us Auslander's ugly ruminations on these holy days? Uh, the rejection of traditional understanding of God and of Judaism and Christianity in, in particular is central to the Times' larger agenda, which is that of the left in general, eliminating dissent and creating an authoritarian state in which reality is determined by authorities, not by God or by our perceptions. The totalitarian state uh, the world have seen in the 20th century have been atheist, and that is no accident. Uh, again, as uh, millions of Jews and Christians celebrate their holy days, the time strikes a blow for statism and authoritarianism, courtesy of Shalom Oslander. Those who nod their heads in agreement with his sour op-ed will think themselves sophisticated as they set themselves on the path to handing over their very selves to the tender mercies of our self-appointed superiors and guardians. Well, uh, Robert Spencer, you're familiar uh, with him, are you not? Absolutely. And uh, what is his background and credentials? Well, uh, coming from Turkish descent and, of course, being an immigrant to the United States, he originally was a liberal activist until he started to look into the information that he was espousing uh, with the, of course, uh, very open-minded uh, and open-armed approach towards, uh, I guess, the media giants and tech tyrants. Uh, in regarding dissenting points of view, he wanted to shed some light on the tendencies of jihad, Islam, and the execution therein as defined by what this uh, unfortunate uh, op-ed individual from the New York Times defined as also the God of Jews and Christians. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, he basically took the time to piece together point by point who his allies really were and uh, being a fantastic author and excellent communicator and just an all-around cheery individual. You find his uh, laugh very hearty if you ever have the chance to hear it. But he found out that uh, apart from the fact that he desired the sort of things that would be politically promised but not executed, that he wasn't going to find free speech in those who claimed to be champions of it. He uh, eventually, uh, of course, not only as a former uh, Roman Catholic, now Orthodox himself, he has uh, not only made his goal in life to... Uh, I guess, normalize the information that is being hidden from us, but also to do so in such a way where it's information first rather than ideology or even ideologue. Okay, so 
Uh, let's get down to cases here, Sean. This is not unfamiliar territory for you yeah. in that uh, you do wade into the trenches uh, on a regular basis online, uh, dealing with interactions with individuals who consider themselves, for instance, to be white supremacists, pagans, uh, Muslims, but as well uh, individuals that would take uh, the view of Shalom Oslander. Well, it, it's not a new point of view. No. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche uh, talked about uh, the idea that God is dead, and uh, the New York Times famously in 1968 uh, published that as a headline. This is the, not the first time or the last time the New York Times is going to suggest that deicide, that is killing God, is a uh, good idea. Um, when an individual takes this kind of uh, pretty hardcore point of view, how would you, if, say, you had the opportunity to interact with Shalom Oshlander online, making these kind of points of view, that the God of the Bible is uh, absolutely evil? This sounds uh, very uh, similar to the kind of uh, stuff the new atheists uh, that, uh, that we interact with uh, are proposing, uh, that God is not good. That was the title of a, a very famous book that was published along uh, that same line. If you had the opportunity to interact with him about these things that he said, you know, looking at the Passover Seder and saying that God uh, paints with too broad of a brush and he was evil in the way that he treat, treated the Egyptians, and certainly we wouldn't want to emulate this kind of uh, horrific God uh, that we find in the Bible. How would you respond to that? Well, I guess two ways, both of which with the same method. First, more information is better than less. Uh, first of all, Robert Spencer was not only kind but predictable enough to have first read his story, uh, the title of it again in reference to lamenting a lost foreskin or something else that graphic. The emphasis and point is to understand where he uh, first... Foreskin's Lament, a memoir, is Shalom Oslander's book. Okay, I was no. close enough. But no. the point being made is this. I'd want to first understand where he was coming from. From, and that's oftentimes done through asking questions. Uh, you and I have uh, frequently revisited the Peter Falk classic Columbo, and that was always how right. he got his man. He would just ask questions until they had eventually put themselves in a corner through honest or less than honest answers and putting the pieces together from there. The second thing that I would encourage is uh, under the assumption he had read his Tanakh, which is the Jewish term for the Old Testament, uh, at the time of his bar mitzvah, I'd emphasize him not to start in Exodus chapter 9 when the Passover took place and the event of the angel of death passing through the city of Egypt and also passing over, thus the celebration, not just the homes of the Jewish people, but if you read the text, it also notes anyone who took advantage of this very public information Moses clarified. And this is not only contextualized in that plague, but also in the nine that preceded it. Everyone who was exempt from these plagues were those who either were living in the land of Israel or had heeded the warnings, like, for instance, the hail and fire and so forth. Right. When we're talking about why the firstborn were targeted, we should also take into consideration why that specific language, and no, it's not a Mel Brooks joke, it was actually deliberate. When the firstborn were targeted, was that an original idea from the evil, quote-unquote, God of the Old Testament? No, it was something that the Pharaoh of Egypt himself had instituted in his policy. He had targeted the firstborn children of Israel, ordering the midwives to toss those children in the Nile if they were born Make male. them crocodile food, in right. other words. Yeah. So if 
the God of Israel is painting with too broad a brush for giving the government exactly what it inflicted on his people without provocation or cause, then I'd say his foreign policy, or I guess criminal policy, is a little too lenient. I would also say that if he's going to paint in so broad a brush that the taking of life is always immoral, then I would ask again for him to be consistent with that and ask a few more questions until he has to inevitably justify the Holocaust, which he's not going to do as a secular Jew or religious. The point being made, though, is this. I'd want to know his side of the story. I'd want to know the way he's looking at these texts so I can hold him to those standards, which Robert Spencer is very good at doing when it comes to Islam. I would also want to make sure that when he holds the Bible to certain standards, that it's actually the Bible he's holding. Because when he makes the statements regarding the God of Muslims, Jews, and Christians, he clearly hasn't read the Quran. Right. And of course, if he's going to make the statement that this genocidal maniac, as caricatured by Richard Dawkins, one of the famous and more vocal new atheists, has made him out to be, you'd want to ask once again, in what instance is life being taken? Because if I, and this is a graphic illustration, not inappropriate, but nonetheless servicing the point, to say violence in every context is immoral. Okay, so I described to you a woman being put on a metal slab and being cut open so that uh, she's basically having her organs exposed. Is that immoral? Absolutely. Lock him away, throw him away the key. The doctor is an obstetrician and he's performing an emergency C-section in order to save the life of the baby who is now at nine months pregnant in her womb, or nine months development in her womb. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Context (laughs) is key. Yeah. So if we're talking about the God of the Bible taking the lives of an entire nation, wait, was it an entire nation? That matters. Wait, were warnings provided? Ten warnings, in fact, up until this point. That matters. Were they all given an equal opportunity to escape this judgment, which was incredibly and almost copy-paste warranted based on the actions committed against the Jews 40 years before this event had taken place, that matters. And, of course, we could go on. But that would be how I'd respond. I'd first want to know where he's coming from, and I'd also make sure he's consistent with what he's attacking. Yeah, and, you know, it, it kind of illustrates a, uh, a couple of scriptures that uh, are sometimes pointed out by skeptics and uh, non-believers as being an example of a contradiction in the Bible, yeah. but really uh, gives us some insight here. In uh, Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 4, if you're coming across somebody who's, you know, one of the new atheists, a Richard Dawkins, a Sam Harris style uh, anti-theist, not just someone who says, I don't believe there's a God, but I actually hate the God uh, that is revealed in the Bible. Uh, how do you respond to all of this? Well, in Proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5, first we're told, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Some have pointed out that this sounds like a contradiction, but really it's a great uh, blow-by-blow description of how we can keep our minds when all about us are losing theirs in one of these kind of debates. First of all, do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Uh, When I've gotten involved with anti-theists, individuals who take that point of view, One of the things you discover is they tend to, and I just ask you, Sean, if you would agree with this, they tend to lead with a lot of insult 
and invective and emotionalism. Would you say that's a fair characteristic? The majority of the time, and especially on the internet or in a setting where they have a mob behind them, yes. Yeah, and, and so you don't want to answer a fool according to his folly. Why? Because you're going to be like him. In other words, if someone is looking on and you're interacting with someone like this on the internet, or if they're looking on and you're interacting with someone like this in the uh, lunchroom at work, uh, if uh, people are looking on and uh, someone's carrying on like this, and maybe you're in foursome in golf or wherever you might be, uh, if you uh, respond by someone who's cursing and swearing at you by saying, well, if you weren't such a heathen destined for the ultimate weenie roast, uh, you might understand there's a God. Well, the people looking on are going to say, I see no difference between these two. I just see two people with two points of view insulting each other. That is answering a fool according to his folly. And uh, maybe you've heard this expression before. A friend of mine, Keith Mathias in California, is in the construction business, shared it with me, and I never forgot it. He said uh, one of the things he discovered over the years is you can only roll in the mud with a pig so long before you figure out the pig's enjoying himself. In other words, we don't want to go down to that level. How do you avoid going down to that level? Well, Sean, I think you gave a great illustration of that. Uh, one of the great ways not to go down to that level is by simply asking questions. Like, for instance, this is a great one to have at your disposal. If someone's just cursing and swearing over the idea of the God of the Bible, just saying something like, wow, uh, you seem to be really angry over this, very emotional over all of this. Has someone that stood for, say, biblical Christianity ever done you harm in your life? It seems rather personal to you. You see, that way you're not getting into engaging on their level. And one of the things that you discover in debate, and I've been in a few debates, organized debates in my life, one of the things you discover is whoever sets the agenda for the debate wins the argument. In other words, if we make it all about emotion and invective, chances are that individual is going to be far more adept at hurling insults and mockery than you or I would ever be. Why? Because we tend to have a conscience in these things, and we can't just go full bore like an individual that uh, buys into, say, a Shalom Oshlander's point of view would be. And so we don't want to answer a fool according to his folly. And the best way to avoid doing that is simply by asking a few pointed questions, asking them why they're so angry, or asking them, well, where in the Bible do you see that particularly taught? Uh, you know, can you give me an example of where the God of the Bible is this hopelessly cruel uh, cosmic sadist uh, and so on? And, and oftentimes you can point out to them by looking at the passage that uh, they are either distorting the Bible or they never read it or they're taking someone's word for it. So don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. But then notice as well as it says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In other words, what we want to do as well is shift the conversation into such a pattern as to show that the message of Jesus Christ makes far more sense than the worldview put forward by, say, a Shalom Oshlander or a Richard Dawkins or a Sam Harris. And when we say it makes more sense, uh, one of the things that uh, Robert Spencer pointed out in his response that I thought was really key was this. Shalom Oshlander never really points out why he has a moral basis to judge the God of the Bible. Where does his atheism that he's espousing give him the moral high ground to be able to say, well, I think this is wrong and this is wrong. Based on what? Um, if 
you buy into an atheistic worldview, essentially what you believe is all we are is the top of the evolutionary dogpile. We have survived and become more fit than anyone else in uh, on this planet in this ecosphere there's no purpose there's no rhyme or reason behind it ultimately might makes right because evolutionism darwinism teaches the survival of the fittest at the cost of the lack of survival of the less fit that's really what it comes down to and uh individuals uh uh, like herbert spencer who uh, promoted a theory called social darwinism uh, taught, among other things, that you should never help out the homeless. Why? Because clearly people that are homeless are mentally defective or unable to get along without some kind of help. And if you help them out, chances are they're going to survive and breed and pass along their inferior uh, genes to someone else. Well, that sounded horrible to people. And people were like, that, that's terrible. But one thing Herbert Spencer pointed out was, no, that's the exact logical conclusion of an atheistic worldview like Darwinism. So when you point out to people, when you uh, essentially answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes, and ask them questions like, okay, what gives you the moral authority to be able to make these kind of moral judgments? If all we are is a nice roll of some chemical dice, if uh, we die uh, and uh, go into nothingness, we're just worm food, essentially the universe is going to run out of gas and uh, you know, end up being nothing, nothing really matters. Uh, as Queen once sang, uh, there is no uh, rhyme or reason to it all, so why should we be concerned about moral issues at all? Well, because it makes me feel good. Well, how do you respond to somebody who says, it doesn't make me feel good? You know, the the thing about uh, evolutionism and the kind of nihilism, we could use the word, that a Shalom Oshlander is uh, promoting in the New York Times is supporting, and we're going to see a lot more of it, so get ready for it, is this. It's not uh, that uh, the belief in God is too good to be true. It's what they're saying is too bad to be true. Nobody can live according to these standards. And, you know, the only other thing that I would add to this, before we go into our questions, is it's interesting that Shalom Oshlander talks about uh, opening up the doors to those who are other, those who don't share our particular point of view. Don't invite Elijah in. Invite somebody who uh, shares a completely different worldview than you and invite them into your homes. Well, my, my question is, uh, would you be comfortable inviting into your homes, say, members of the Taliban who believe, for instance, that uh, it is their Allah-given right Uh, according to their view of the Quran, to uh, rape and sexually molest uh, women uh, with uh, no consequence. Would you invite someone like that in to dinner? Uh, You know, would you invite someone into dinner, uh, for instance, who uh, believed, uh, for instance, like uh, Jim Jones, that uh, the best way to honor uh, God, who Jim Jones believed he was, is to uh, include on your uh, dinner table some uh, cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. Would you invite someone like... You see, it it sounds all well and good until it meets reality. The other thing that I would say is this. It's just interesting to me that a guy like Shalom Oshlander is saying that the God of the Bible is terrible and that we should uh, invite in the stranger and uh, the homeless and the helpless. But that same Bible that Shalom Oshlander is decrying uh, talks about the idea of honoring God uh, by doing exactly that. In Isaiah 58, uh, when uh, speaking of the fast days, 
God says to the people of Israel in verse 5, Is it a fast that I've chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out his sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I've chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and, and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Uh, you will cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light will break, uh, will dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And it goes on from there. I guess the thing that I would want to point out to Shalom Oshlander is I don't know what kind of orthodox upbringing he had or why he's so sour on the God of the Bible. That's why we would ask him the questions you talked about, Sean. But it seems to me, if you pointed this out to him, he'd say, Isaiah would agree with you. Bring him on in. You Moses know, extend, would agree with you. Extend you. Moses would agree. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jesus would agree with you. The Apostle Paul would agree with you. So what's your bone to pick with the God who inspired these men to write the Bible? So, you know, again, I think if we can take these things down, not answer a fool according to his folly, you know, not to say, Jihad, we're going to go get that Shalom Ashlander and the New York Times and anybody who blasphemes our God. No, I think the best way to respond to this is what? Show them the God of the Bible isn't this straw man that they've invented. And that doesn't happen if we don't first take the time to know him for ourselves. Yeah, Make exactly. sure that we're not blaspheming him by treating him as a side trivial detail and actually knowing who it is we love. Yeah. A few questions sent along to us. Uh, this one I want to start with. Actually, let's, uh, why don't we uh, get some of the easy ones out because most of these can be done yes or no. Um, Light Dragon wants to know, why did Satan contend for the body of Moses and Jude? Was he looking for a host? Um, we don't know, but I can pretty much say no to the theory because we don't have an example in Scripture of demons inhabiting or benefiting from the use of a corpse. Uh, it's, of course, taken from, um, some believe, an apocryphal account, which was regarding the assumption of Moses that he would uh, try to reveal its location to promote idolatry in Israel. But as far as the historical validity of that text, we don't know if there was an actual event where Michael was contending with Lucifer. The point that Jude was making was just like the Archangel Michael isn't going to contend with Satan. That point was at least valid and acknowledged. He is not going to let anyone short of God deal with these false teachers either. That's the point of the book. Yeah. Um, um, the only thing I'd add to that is, uh, you know, the, the speculation about why this argument over the body of Moses and why did Satan uh, want to have it? Uh, well, let's face it. Uh, Moses was a pretty major league prophet. In fact, Moses was so respected that even Jesus' enemies uh, came on the scene and said, uh, you know, we're disciples of Moses. You know, they venerated him. He was the, the ultimate prophet par excellence. If Moses' body had been buried and a shrine had been attached to it, what impact would that possibly have 
on the people of Israel. We're speculating because these things haven't happened. But I think we can speculate from an interesting example of an artifact that accompanied Moses' ministry that might explain why this spiritual battle was going on. In 2 Kings 18, we're told about the rise to power of King Hezekiah. Uh, We're told in verse 3, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and broke in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel burned incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, which means a worthless piece of bronze. Okay, here we have an artifact that was kept with the people of Israel, the bronze serpent. You remember the story of the bronze serpent? What happened with the bronze serpent? In the book of Numbers, Israel, interestingly enough, had regularly led rebellions against Moses and Aaron, that, God, you just brought us out in this wilderness to die, us and our children. Like, that worked the last 50 times they made that declaration. Yeah. And they took one step outside of the cloud that was protecting them in the wilderness, keeping their clothes from falling apart, keeping them not only provided for as far as the manna, but also shielded from the heat of the day and the cold in the night. Everything was provided for while they were in this cloud. But when they stepped out... Um, snakes happened and they started to get bit and they started to die they came back to the cloud and said god forgive us just take away the snakes and the snakes followed them into the cloud god wasn't taking them away but instead he told moses make a bronze serpent not to worship but so that the people of israel would look at it and anyone who looks at it acknowledging this means of uh, i guess uh, reconciliation with God, this provision for healing, instead of just taking away the consequences, they had to do something yeah. in order to receive that healing. Anyone who looked at the bronze serpent, it didn't say the pain of the bite would go away. It didn't say that the snake would disappear. It just says they would not die. Right. And as a result, that was something not only so noteworthy in Jewish history that a certain Jewish rabbi by the name of Jesus of Nazareth references it in John chapter 3 in verse 14. Yeah, he, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up. Yep, so it was yeah. direct, uh, I guess, foreshadowing of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. And, and the, the interesting image of the serpent, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In other words, uh, this picture of the source of death that they would look upon, uh, this, this image of, of sin would be a uh, foreshadowing of Jesus becoming sin for us. And also, this is a theory on my part, take it for what it's worth, but since Israel still had the artifact at the time of Hezekiah, that means that it had been in their possession for at least the last, oh, maybe 600 years. Yeah. And if we look at the pagan Greeks and Phoenicians who set up and popularized these things like the Staff of Hermes, uh, their god of healing and so forth. Ashepolis, which yeah. was the, ser- the serpent, the, the image that you see of the American Medical Association. The earliest we have dated to that is around 700, which I find very interesting. The Jews had been basically associating this image of healing with a serpent on a pole, and I believe that the theory... I believe the Greeks borrowed from that. But uh, when we're we're talking about this incident, it was something associated with healing, something God did, but apparently they confused what God did with God. Okay, so here we see just an artifact, right, that surrounded the ministry of Moses. And what were people doing? They were bowing down and worshiping it. Could you imagine the spiritual mayhem that would have uh, accompanied, say, a shrine on Mount Nebo where Moses' body 
had been buried. How many people would be going up there and claiming curative powers or calling, asking for uh, plagues to be? You, you can imagine the possibility for uh, distortion and distraction and so on. And let's face it, Satan's number one agenda is to take God's truth and distort it, deceive people, to leave people away from God. So I don't believe that it was a, uh, a battle because uh, Satan wanted to use Moses' body uh, along that line. I, I agree with you, Sean. There's no example in Scripture of Satan being able to animate a corpse or having uh, use for know, it by, by possessing it. Uh, he can only get involved with people that are living because Satan isn't the equal and opposite of God. He can't bring the dead back to life. Uh, so, you know, when we see this sort of thing going on, I think it's probably more likely that the reason that Moses' body was buried by God and its location was not given to the people of Israel was for Israel to realize it wasn't Moses that led you out of the wilderness. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 when uh, they said, Moses gave us bread from heaven every day. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven every day. My heavenly father did. So you, you can see how easily those things can get twisted. I think that's what's going on there in the book of Jude. Obviously, uh, we're offering a speculation there, but I think it's speculation that's certainly based upon some other scriptural evidence, far more than just saying, you know, well, uh, Satan wanted to jump into Moses' body and then lead people astray. That'd be fun. Yeah. Um, another question I think we can answer shortly, but could give a longer response. Yari wants to know, was the Prince of Persia incident in Daniel uh, chapter 9 specifically an example of spiritual warfare? Yeah, I I think that's all that need be said. It no was, doubt. It was a instance of warfare in the spiritual realm. That's spiritual and, warfare. And the only thing I would add to that is, uh, yeah, it was spiritual warfare, but once again, God is undefeated, and Satan was defeated. The message got through. Yep, and not a second sooner or farther than God intended it to anyway. Yep. And then Neil wants to know, in Genesis 3.8, it says the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Is this a Christophany? Uh, yeah, Neil, I believe it is. Uh, when it comes to a clarification that was made to us in John chapter 1, cult groups like to hang us on this, but it unfortunately ends up furthering our point. When it says that no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten the Father, he has revealed him. Right, when the only begotten Son is in the bosom of the Father, he's, he's revealed, revealed him. Yeah. But noting this point, then, if God was appearing to Adam and Eve, well, those are somebody, those are some buddies. Right. If that is the case, then either the Bible's an error or this uh, isn't, or Jesus isn't, uh, of course, speaking for God. Well, if on the other hand, we take this from another stat and ask, who was God appearing to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? If it wasn't the Father, who no one has seen at any time, who else could it be? Well, it could be the Spirit. But the spirit is spirit, not a physical body. We don't have any instance, unless you read the shack, well, of him appearing in a physical form. Well, manifested as a dove at Jesus' baptism, but that's about it. Yeah, and that's the only written record unless you assume the conclusion rather than the description. The only other option in the Trinity would be the Son, and I believe that that was the one appearing to Adam and Eve. And, and then from that time onward, uh, we do see uh, God appearing and in, in interacting with people. Uh, in human form. Uh, it does appear uh, that uh, these were uh, Christophanies, that is, Jesus appearing in a uh, form that could be interacted with uh, prior to the time that he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. All right. Um, Laid in the manger, born in the stable. There you go. Right. <laughs> um, question, kind of, 
from Nina, who brings up the doctrines of demons uh, in reference to that uh, interesting article, Misrepresenting the Character of God. This passage, I think, is worth bringing attention to because a lot of people quote this passage whenever a wind or wave of doctrine gets thrown around. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, right. where Paul, describing the state of the last days, says that people will follow these doctrines of demons, but he goes on to define what those things are. Right. Let's read that, and then let's ask what other passage might be more appropriately applied. Yeah, the doctrines of demons are defined in this way in verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So that whole section was not necessarily denoting any particular false teaching apart from abstinence from marriage, which we'd consider moral nowadays. Someone who uh, commits a vow of chastity or uh, abstinence, I just, I'm committing myself to God in this way. Paul calls that a doctrine of demons. Now note, there are those who have made themselves eunuch for the kingdom of God's sake, but that's different. Is teaching or or who have the gift of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7. But noting that point, if we're going to appropriately appropriately apply that God doesn't want you to get married, 1 Timothy 4 is calling that a doctrine of demons. Right. Likewise, you say, oh, those those foods are sinful. What was the historical context of people saying those foods are satanic? Well, the the fact of the matter was they would look at the kosher laws of Israel and they would say that uh, there was a reason that God said, not, don't eat these kind of foods. Which is true. And uh, if uh, we are non-kosher, if you will, in what we put into our bodies, we have disobeyed God. And because of what we've done, we are separated from him. So we're And s- if you keep kosher law, this is where yeah. the trap snaps shut. Yeah. If you keep kosher law, you are right with God. If you abstain from marriage then you are right, or catch this, more right with God than someone who doesn't. So, and the passage goes on to emphasize that one point. It doesn't say that they're forsaken from the truth or even their hypocrisy per se. It talks about those two specific titles or those two specific doctrines. Right. The abstinence from marriage, which right. we normally associate with religiosity, and the abstinence of certain foods because of spiritual connotations. Now, Neither of those things are necessarily what were brought up in that article. What would be a passage that would more appropriately apply to someone misrepresenting the Scripture, misrepresenting the character of God? I'd recommend Second Peter chapter 3, where the Apostle Peter, not only mentioning Paul, but going on to denote those who twist his words, so right. having hard to understand, as well as the rest of the Scriptures. So just be careful when we throw out the terms like doctrines of demons. That's speaking, believe it or not, of people doing religious things but thinking that's what makes them right with God. Yeah, you know, oftentimes we think that Satan does his greatest damage when he shows up wearing silk jammies and smoking a pipe like, you know, the old uh, uh, pictures of Hugh Hefner and uh, the Playboy mentality. But uh, more damage gets done to people when he shows up uh, wearing sackcloth and uh, saying, oh, I've got these huge demands for you, and unless you do these things, unless you make right choices, boy, we sure see that in evangelical circles, uh, you're not right with God. And, you know, we're not saying that uh, when people make wrong choices, there aren't consequences there. 
But our basis of being right with God isn't a slavish obedience to an external code. The only thing that makes us right with God is not what we do for God, but what Jesus Christ has done for us, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The Apostle Paul said, I do not set aside the grace of God, literally to make it of no effect, for if righteousness comes by the law, making right choices, always doing the right things, then Christ died needlessly. Well, we'd never want to say that. So our basis of being right with God isn't what we do for God. It's only what Jesus did for us. But having been made right with God, we then respond out of love and want to do things that are pleasing to him. And Not in order to be righteous, but because we've been made righteous already because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's the foundation of everything. If you're struggling in an area of sin, it's not that stop doing that will somehow make me more saved. It's the fact that because I'm saved, how can I live in light of this? God, enable me with so much satisfaction in you. There's no room for these counterfeits. It's not saying, oh, well, if I just muster up enough uh, spiritual hooks, if you will, and manage to you know, muscle my way through this sin and attain works righteousness, well, then uh, I can obviously say I'm worthy of being saved. Oh, doesn't that sink of pride? Yeah. Let's make sure that we don't fall into that trap and also make sure we represent the passages that are being quoted. Hey, here's a, a question we've gotten on uh, our uh, Facebook uh, page. Uh, I think this is right up your alley, Sean. It comes from Casey. Uh, she says, are the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 3 who are filled with the Holy Spirit going to be the only presence of God's Spirit on earth at that time. Since we are filled with the Holy Spirit and raptured out of here then, would God's presence and goodness in the lives of non-believers, as they experience right now, uh, from being with us then disappear? Or is that a wrong way to think? Um, I wrote the notes, so I'll clarify my statement. It won't necessarily be a reiteration, just a clarification. Um, I made the theory and the proposal that the ministry of the 144,000 was through these two witnesses. So obviously they won't be the only ones preaching the word of God at this time. Now, through these two witnesses, what you mean is the 144,000 were trained and discipled by these two witnesses and then sent out into the world with the same message, correct? And the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation also mentioned in Revelation 7, likewise, weren't keeping that to themselves. That's frankly probably why they got killed. But the point being made is that, though, Casey, I wasn't making the assumption that the two witnesses were the, you know, literal Elijah and Moses, pun intended. Uh, All of your prophets are slain and only I am left. It is better for me to die than to live. No, the world is receiving the gospel more than any other time in history. The problem is the violent opposition to them will mean that they are limited to the temple, but the word will still be going out, and that will be through their primary ministry and their spiritual offspring, who I believe are the 144,000. Yeah, and she follows up with another question. gets asked a lot in this set of circumstances. She said, also, I got a little confused. It comes naturally. Ha ha. Good folks. Join the club there, Casey. Uh, When you spoke of Elijah being possibly one of the two witnesses, you briefly mentioned something about us in the rapture as not having had an earthly death. Uh, Would we 
then have to eventually return to die an earthly death? No, I use that illustration to be absurd. And the reason why is because I was addressing a possible theory so that everyone listening could hear both sides of the argument and then why I don't hold that argument. We gave three examples. First, is it Elijah and Zerubbabel? Is it Elijah and John? Is it Elijah and Enoch? If you want to know the reasons for the first two, be my guest. We take Moses and Elijah as the fourth. But the reason for Elijah and Enoch was, and this is the theory, because Enoch was taken up bodily to be with God right. without physical death. Him and Elijah are the only ones to fit that bill. But the problem with it, and this was the point I was making, Casey, is if I say that it is given man wants to die, then comes the judgment. So the reason why these two witnesses have to be the ones is because they have to physically die. Well, there's other people in history at this time who will also enter heaven without physically dying all those who died in the rapture and then i in an absurdist point say does that mean that everyone who was taken up in the rapture likewise has to come back to the earth in order to physically die to fit this bill as well then the obvious parenthetical answer is no the point being made is this if god makes an exception he'll point that out right but the usual rule is that it is given man wants to die we came to the conclusion that it was Moses and Elijah, not because of this like obscure rule or principle that has exceptions, like with Moses and Enoch, not because of a passage that only applies to Zerubbabel and not to Elijah, like in Haggai chapter 2, not because of a previous chapter, though I do recognize the merit of it, in Revelation chapter 10, where John is told you must prophesy again to many peoples, tongues and nations. They make the suggestion that's John being one of the witnesses. I say, I get it. But I don't got it. Yeah, I don't. I don't buy it. Uh, Last, yeah, yeah. The only other thing I'd say is, uh, Casey, if I'm understanding you, it seems like you're worried that we'll get raptured and then we have to come back and die sometime, like during the millennial kingdom or during the final rebellion. Uh, But in First Corinthians 15, uh, we're told in verse 50 a very important aspect of what happens to us when we're raptured. It says, "Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God." nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Changed in what way? Verse 53 gives the answer. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. In other words, when we get raptured, Casey, at that moment, we're not only caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, but God gives us a spiritual body like Jesus had after his resurrection, which will not know corruption or uh, fault or failure or sin ever again. We're going to be uh, just like Jesus in that respect. And I think that's an awesome thing because if we go from zero to twinkling of an eye, getting caught up in the clouds, suddenly thousands of feet up in the air, and we have these regular physical human bodies, we'll probably just explode. So God is going to have to transform us into a body that not only can handle that radical and rapid change, uh, but also be able to be with Jesus as he greets us in the clouds. If you were to step out on the wing of an airplane and think that you could stand on a cloud right now, I think you would find that all you would get in that process is wet and then go splat when you hit the ground at the end of the time. These physical bodies of ours are not intended to function in that environment. So we're given a spiritual body that for all those reasons 
uh, will uh, never know corruption or death ever again. And at that point, we don't have to come back and, and die again, if you will. Yeah, I was uh, making a absurdist illustration yeah. as to why that yeah. doesn't yeah. fit. Yeah. Uh, here's a question from Yari as well, who wants to know, is the seven mountain mandate for dominion theology biblical? Those are a lot of terms. Uh, dominion theology, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, is the belief that mankind assumption is getting better and better and ultimately will result in this world being made into a utopia, a perfect paradise planet where righteousness reigns and Jesus will essentially return just to kind of take the keys to the kingdom from us that we've built up for him. This was a very popular belief uh, in Pentecostal circles as well as any church before World War II. We realized mankind was only getting worse. The point being made, though, is uh, regarding the Seven Mountain Mandate. It's the belief that if these uh, moral institutions are introduced to the world, and let me read them off uh, here to you, that education in a godly context, religion, family, business, government, which includes the military, the arts and media, all fall in line with the, uh, I guess, nature of God, the these things are made right, then everything will be right. Well, those are, I guess, nice things that we'd like to reflect godliness, but the fact remains that even if all these things were perfectly in line with the character of God, people would still find a way to mess them up. The point being made in the seven uh, mountain mandate is based on two faulty assumptions. First of all, that the world is going to get better and better, that the end times will be ushered in by a fixing of the world rather than a falling apart. And the second is the assumption that the ones laying down this authority had the prophetic authority to declare it as what would actually be the case. We've discussed the New Apostolic Reformation and a lot of uh, false teachers that come out of Pentecostalism frequently on the broadcast. If you'd like to ask that another time, we'll just say in short, I don't trust them. But the point being made is this, uh, no, Yari, the seven mountain mandate is not a biblical one because while it is based on biblical principles, it is introducing an idea that this world can be made right if these things are fixed. All those things are external. The only thing that God is intent on fixing is this, not the entertainment industry. Yeah, and it goes hand in hand uh, with a uh, movement that does get some traction in charismatic and Pentecostal uh, circles called the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, churches like Bethel and others like this tend to promote this this uh, idea. Uh, basically, it puts a tremendous uh, pressure on believers to perform, to make progress, in their spheres of influence because they believe that they're setting the stage for Jesus' return to earth. And uh, the problem with that is there's little emphasis being placed on sharing the gospel anymore. Uh, it is uh, pretty much a point of view that abandons uh, the idea of uh, biblical end times teaching because they believe that they can bring about the end times uh, through their own work. Uh, it really sets aside salvation by grace through faith because it teaches that we can make this world a better place by doing the right thing and taking over these various uh, areas. Uh, you know, again, I think it should uh, be avoided. Uh, the new apostolic reformation should be avoided as well because the individuals get involved with it. And again, maybe I'm painting with a broad brush here. Your mileage may vary, but the ones that I've read about or even had encounters with 
tend to believe that uh, the uh, apostolic, the new apostles and prophets, uh, of whom they always claim to be one, are a sort of a super-Christian sort of uh, hierarchy, a tier above the average believer. And it just tends to play on pride. It tends to be manipulative, has uh, overhangs of the old shepherding movement uh, where individuals would have to confess their sins to their superior believer and so on. And it removes Jesus uh, from being the uh, center point of people's, uh, not only their relationship with God, uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as being what makes us right with God, our hope of Jesus' return as that which is going to right this world gone wrong. But apart from that, it's not too bad. So <laughs> bad just, sources, sarcastic there. Bad sources, bad assumptions, bad conclusions. Yeah. Not recommended, Yari. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll finish up with this from Monica. Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Armageddon, the difference. So many group this into one event. Um, you mean the battle in the valley of Armageddon, Revelation 19? Or are you talking yeah. about the Yeah, uh, is final... Ezekiel 38 and 39 a description of Revelation 19? I've also uh, heard some people equate, and this would have more strength to it, and we'd still disagree, but the final rebellion in Revelation 20. Clarify with us tomorrow. We'll go into more detail on that. But uh, is Ezekiel 38 and 39... Revelation 19? No, uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, we see in that particular invasion, uh, God uh, putting an end to this invasion uh, radically. Uh, The particular uh, people that are involved with this invasion, led by Russia, are uh, very different uh, from the main characters that we see involved in the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, When you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, you see this fellow Gog of uh, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal uh, being the leader of all this in uh, Revelation 16 and in Revelation 19. The Antichrist is the one who is the uh, one who stirs the drink as far as that particular battle is concerned. So there are two definite uh, different battles, uh, and uh, we do see that the Battle of Armageddon is uh, ended uh, when Jesus, in fact, returns personally to set up his kingdom on earth. Ezekiel 38 and 39, that battle is ended uh, when the invading army is supernaturally destroyed by God, but we see no evidence of God returning at the culmination of that battle. So big main difference there, Monica. Well, the music cometh, so just in time. We appreciate all of your participation, and there are one or two questions we didn't get the chance to uh, answer. Email those to us, and Peter Martin and I will deal with them tomorrow. Until then, God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.